This year's state legislative session has once again resulted with many new laws that will affect Hoosiers for years to come. Our guests this week are State House reporters and legislators who have firsthand knowledge of the inner workings behind the bills that are on their way to becoming law this year. Join us as we summarize everything from this year's legislative session that you need to know right after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with WFIU, WTIU reporter Joe Wren uh, from Indiana Public Media. And we're going to talk today about the Indiana legislative session, which wrapped up last week. The whirlwind of debate and discussion. Uh, it was uh, it was a very active session, and a lot of bills are still on uh, on Governor Holcomb's desk, waiting to be signed. Um, we had road funding, cold beer sales, I step reform. There were all sorts of things that were in the legislature this year, so we're going to talk about that with three members of the General Assembly, as well as two people who've been observing the General Assembly from mm -hmm. up close. Um, and those two people are, are Brandon Smith, the State House reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting, who's here in the studio, and Ed Feigenbaum, State House dispatch columnist, who's joining us by phone. Hi, Ed. And also, uh, yeah, and also we have uh, Senator Eric Bassler, a, a Republican from Washington, Indiana. Senator Mark Stoops, a Democrat from Bloomington, and Jeff Ellington, a Republican from Bloomington, who's a state representative. You can join us on the program by calling 1-812-855-0811 in Bloomington. You don't need that first one, so 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area, and you can also join us at Noon Edition. So thank you all for being here. It's been a, it was a, it's always a, a wild session when the, when the legislature's up there in Indianapolis. So I'm going to start with Eric Bassler, um, Republican State Senator, Senate, Senate District six, uh, 39, rather. Correct. Um, mm -hmm. So, Senator? Yeah, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be on the show and um, um, looking forward to just kind of see what we can all talk about today. Uh, just, just a couple of key points, I guess, about the Senate session or the, the legislative session, um, and you've really kind of highlighted those. Is obviously the budget; it's the big item that we are required to get done every two years. Uh, road funding uh, was in the, a lot of headlines. Um, I was a, a bit involved with, with both of those as being a member of the Appropriations Committee. 
Uh, and then I was um, rather heavily involved with uh, the work related to ISTEP as part of the education committee. So those were, I guess, some of the things I was more heavily involved on, uh, heavily involved in that were, you know, at least in the headlines are somewhat noteworthy this session. So what were the highlights of the budget t- for you? Just one or uh, two highlights. Yeah, the, I think the important thing about the budget is we always want to have a balanced budget. And um, we, we had some reasonable economic numbers come in during session that allowed us maybe to, to budget a few more dollars than we would have otherwise uh, been able to do. Um, my involvement in education uh, led me to be pleased with the additional funding we put towards K-12 education. And when I say involvement, I'm, I'm not involved from a personal professional perspective but being on the education committee. So I was uh, glad to see the additional roughly $340 million that goes towards K-12 education. Um, and then uh, I believe, and, and the proof will be in the pudding, you know, a year or two or three years down the road, but I believe that we're in the process of truly fixing the I-STEP problem. Um, I've been in the legislature now for about two and a half years, and um, I was well aware of the I-STEP prior to that because I have uh, five children that were taking it in various grades. and, and um, um, so, so I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to solve the challenges we have there over the next couple of years and, and, and move on to... Um, I think a much better process, but then also uh, um, we can get into more detail. I don't want to take up too much time right now, but we can get into more detail if you'd like to. A much better process when it comes to um, um, helping young people transition from from high school onto something, whether it's a four-year degree, a two-year degree, some type of certification or or, or things along those lines. We've done a lot of things I think is going to make it easier for young people to transition into a a successful career for themselves. Okay. Let's let's stay in the Senate for a minute. Let's go to to Mark Stoops. Senator Mark Stoops is a a Democrat who represents District 40. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Bob. Um, And I would agree with uh, Eric that uh, obviously the budget, the two-year budget, is the uh, the biggest uh, hurdle that we had to tackle, uh, road funding, was a focus this year as a priority for infrastructure. Um, I I have some maybe a different perspective. Kind of my the, the biggest issue that I see is that um, Indiana has a relatively stagnant economy, and this is a point I I try to make in the Senate that. Although our funding is increasing, it's barely just keeping pace with inflation. Uh, and to me, if we're talking about a lot of the tax cuts that have been given to uh, uh, corporate tax cuts and, and uh, income tax cuts that have gone mainly to higher income Hoosiers, um, that represents a real loss of revenue for the state. So when we look at revenue numbers that are maybe a little bit higher, we still have to keep in mind that it's just we're just basically keeping pace with inflation. Uh, we have increased education funding for K through 12, but at the same time, it's it's far under inflation. So, if we're talking about basically one and a half percent increase in funding for K through 12 over the next two years, that means that that's a reduction rather than an increase in funding. That means a reduction in spending capability for schools and and a reduction in ability for to maintain programs Mm -hmm. uh, as well as a larger shift uh, towards uh, vouchers so while education funding for k-12 was increasing uh, at a very minimal rate the funding uh, increase for vouchers was about seven percent seven eight percent so another ten eleven million dollars a year uh, just for the voucher programs Okay, so that's a, a view from both sides of the aisle in the Senate. Now we're going to go to the House. Jeff Ellington is here. Jeff uh, represents District 62. 
Thank you for having us on today. Um, I look back at this session. This is my second session. And you look back, you can look back at uh, U.S. history about times when things changed drastically. And people think at that time, during that time, whether it be the Berlin Wall or whatever issue it was, now this is not as important as those issues, but you know, people back then did not say that this is history or we are a part of history. But as you look back, I can actually say that for Indiana, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, that the road for job stability and to make an investment in our community, this was probably one of the most historic sessions that I think we've seen in the last 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I say that because government to people, uh, they think they have secret funds, they have a you know, surplus that's just sitting there that you know, we want to tax more and we want to spend more. And when in reality, those dollars are there for a reason. They're there for stability. Uh, take the last 13 uh, tax cuts the Indiana House has done over the last uh, 14 sessions uh, that made job growth and stability, stability uh, for Indiana much better than any other state or most states across the nation. Uh, we're in top five. We are an envy. Uh, so when I go to communities uh, trying to sell this budget we just passed, you know, there was, I got the Senate on the left, both sides of me right here. I'm kind of getting <laughs> squeezed. And that's how really the session was for me this uh, last two sessions. And this was a lot more this session during budgets. But when somebody walks up to me and says, we don't think you need more uh, user fees for this or, or an increase there or a deduction there because we think you are not honest with where those dollars go. And I can say with this budget, especially the road funding bill, that over a few sessions will take 100% of those gas user fees and apply it to roads and bridges. Even though you don't think we need that money, people was really happy about the honesty and have a true budget in front of them that they know where their dollars are going to. And so I, I think uh, this really sets up Indiana to be the envy once again. You know, it may take uh, a year or two to get all those road dollars flowing. I know uh, July's are uh, budget cycle. We've still got extra money that was approved last session for roads and bridges that are still sitting there in communities' uh, budgets. They just got to uh, find some extra 50-50 uh, uh, match, or this time small communities would get 80-20, depending on your population. And I just think that sets us up for the future, and I can say I am glad to be here. I am very appreciated to be here. In this moment, I think, in Indiana's history, will be looked on for years to come. All right, let's go to the uh, Ed Feigenbaum. We have we have you on Indy, Ed. Absolutely. Okay, it's hard Ed. To, hard to follow a description like that. And, and let me tell you, when, when Jeff and I were on the show uh, wrapping things up a year ago, I was kind of smiling because uh, he hadn't had the experience of going through a, a really tough kind of session. And now it's two years in a row that he's been there, and things have, have been uh, very very collegial and. and not seen the kind of, of uh, partisan divisiveness and nastiness that we've been seeing for a number of years before that. I'm, I'm not sure that uh, Jeff is the cause, but uh, <laughs> certainly benefiting from the effect here. But, you know, I want to kind of put the session in, in in a different kind of, of context and put it in that, that two-year biennial context um, that I was just kind of alluding to. 
you know, we, we really had a very smooth running session, and people underestimate the importance of, of friction and, and the ability of, of leaders to smooth things over, but we really had some adult leadership in the session from the governor, from the leaders of all four caucuses, um, Senator Long, Senator Lannon in the Senate, uh, Speaker Bosma, and Representative Elas in the House. And this really served the people very well. It made it easier for legislation to make it through. And we were able to accomplish a, a pretty significant agenda, as Representative Ellington you know, just, just talked about. And I think that these kinds of things tend to kind of go without uh, mention and really do deserve mention, because we've seen some sessions in, in very recent years that have, have just been particularly nasty and, and make people not want to come back for the next year. And I think that we've, we've got uh, some real optimism and enthusiasm going toward it next year, and we still have a few items that are going to be on the agenda next year that uh, you know I hope we can talk about later on in, in the afternoon here. All right, and we're going to go to Brandon Smith next to just sort of wrap this this first round of questioning up. Sure. Well, I think to Ed's point about it being a very collegial session, I agree, and then all the leadership talked about that, and I think a lot of people placed um, some of the reason for that on Governor Eric Holcomb and how how uh, collaborative, and that's a word that Governor Holcomb has used a lot in the last few uh, few days about how collaborative the session was between all four leaders, even Representative Pilath and Leader Lannon talked about how they felt like it was a much better working relationship with Governor Holcomb than it had been with his predecessor. But uh, the most notable thing to me um, as a reporter at the State House, uh, who's just finished my seventh session now, was the sense of uh, the lack of, of a blow up over a controversial social issue that we, has sort of marked in many ways the last five or six sessions in many ways. Um, there was obviously the controversy surrounding cold beer and Rickers and alcohol carryout, um, which drew everybody's attention for the last few weeks of session. But that's not a, a partisan divide there. We have Republicans and Democrats on both sides of that issue, which makes it one of the more fun ones at the state house, quite frankly. Um, but the, the, there was only one abortion bill that survived, and even that had gotten uh, somewhat significantly watered down from its original version. Um, there was uh, a couple of gun measures, but they didn't draw nearly as much controversy as, as past ones have. And, and Speaker Bosman talked about this at the end of session, how that wasn't an accident. They really tried to keep the focus on road funding because convincing Hoosiers that raising their taxes was going to be a good thing uh, is a hard enough job when that's all you're doing. And, and they really did want the spotlight on that because there was an education effort that had to happen to convince Hoosiers that this was the right move. And so if it had gotten crowded out with a lot of other controversial hot button issues that draw a lot of the attention and the debate at the State House, it was going to make that job of educating Hoosiers on the road funding plan harder. So it wasn't an accident that we saw sort of everything else quieted down this year. Mm -hmm. If you have any questions or comments about what just happened at the Indiana General Assembly, you can give us a call <clears throat> at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I assume you hear from your constituents throughout the session. What were some of the, the top uh, topics that was it road funding was it Rickers was it the alcohol laws what what was the number one thing from speak with our legislators here I mean just kind of speak up uh, as you feel that that you heard the most from 
I guess locally, and, I, and, and keep in mind that I re- represent Bloomington, mm-hmm. it would have been the uh, uh, net metering bill. So Senate Bill 309 that uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, utilities decided that they wanted to pay less of a payback to customers that had, say, solar panels on their roof. So rather than if somebody has a solar panel on their roof, they use uh, a certain amount of electricity off the grid. And then if their solar panels are producing more electricity and that feeds back into the grid, they get reimbursed at that net or that same rate. Uh, so there was a proposal that that rate should be cut. And uh, in my district, that was a, a big deal. Um, let, let me ask about that, that bill passed, by the way. It did pass, but it's still on the governor's desk. Is there any any chance that he might veto it? Have you heard anything? There may be a chance. Um, I think, for one thing, the bill is probably unnecessary. Um, I, I think there was enough uh, enough uh, leeway for the the language that was in current law to to play out. Also, it seems to me that the IURC should be writing that. Um, uh, writing the proposal for how these customers should be reimbursed because they have a lot, they have the ability and the nonpartisan ability to do a, a, a research on the issue and come up with a solution. Okay. Jeff? Jeff? I would say it's probably a very complicated issue. I could sit down with six different lawyers representing six different parts of that bill, and as I walk away, I'm thinking, did I hear just what I thought I heard, or it really was confusing to the average person? Um, but I would say the first thing is you got to look at that uh, that was fixed at a one percent rate, uh, and when when the municipalities, not municipalities, but when the utilities reached that one percent, uh, they could have, and we don't know for sh- this for sure, but they could have stopped all net metering once it rate reached that one percent. So with this agreement, this extends this, and now it goes up to. Was it 2% thereabouts? Yeah, I think so. Um, and then it also grandfathers in those existing infrastructures for 30 years. And if you purchase it before, I think, the end of this year and get a new system up and going, uh, you're still grandfathered. Then after that time, you're grandfathered until a later date, maybe for 15 years after that. And then past 2022, uh, you're grandfathered at wholesale net 25. So they're still... Um, the availability to use solar, but what you got to keep in mind is all those rural customers or even uh, customers within urban areas that subsidize uh, the utility lines and the infrastructure from substation to substation, and there's a fee in there. So is it fair, you got to look at both sides of the coin, is it fair for those non-solars to subsidize that infrastructure, yet you can see that the solar guy, it, he might send that extra electricity maybe down to his neighbor, which is not that far. There's still a, a line that he uses, and who pays for that line? So this at least takes into account, I think, uh, a moving target, and hopefully after a year we see how it all falls out, and you know we'll meet again. And if there's harm, I'm sure the legislature will take up the issue that, of those who got harmed, and I'll be right there with them. Is this the you issue could, that you, you could do a whole show yeah. on just this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you really wanted yeah. to get down into the weeds on it, and, yeah. and, uh, is this the issue though that you heard the most about from your constituents? Well, it, I, from your office, mm, depends on the time of year. 
Yeah. You know, um, I heard early on, as I did last session, about road funding, you know, from county commissioners and county council, city council, mayors, that, you know, we need more road dollars. And last session we gave some, you know, with that 50-50 match. Uh, a lot of communities did not have enough money in their budget left over to use all that. So they've got a, they've got a probably 40 to 50 percent of that left there still to attain until July. And um, I heard that early on. Um, I mean, if you go across these rural bridges and there are old iron structures that maybe only one car can go through and you got a delivery, you know, even if you're a farmer with those wide pieces of equipment and grain trucks, um, that takes an effect on your economy. There's a bridge in uh, towards Terre Haute on 46. I was at uh, Green, I can't remember the town, uh, Greenwood, Greenfield, not Greenwood. There, there, Bowling Green. Bowling Green. There's a bridge right there right now that does not meet uh, specifications for weights. So we have trucks going from Terre Haute to Bloomington, vice versa, to 69. Now, since 69, they've been able to cut off there a little bit and find some alternative routes. But that bridge is closed for trucks over, I think, 11 tons. That has an effect on our economy. It has an effect on the farmers around there and small businesses and large alike. And... We need to fix those bridges. And there's a ripple effect when he talks about having to divert those trucks. Uh, now you're putting stress on other roads that weren't necessarily meant for, for regular truck traffic of that size. So now you're looking at you're going to have to spend more money than you initially planned on to fix those roads down the line, too. Mm-hmm. So it has so when one bridge shuts down or when one bridge is what they call functionally obsolete, which means it doesn't meet some of the weight and, and width standards um, uh, that, that you need for, for regular traffic, um, it has that ripple effect around the entire area. We have a phone call, but I want to hear from Eric first. Sure, sure. Probably the, the issues that I heard most about when either by phone or email or, or some of our legislative updates we'd have throughout the district, uh, they focused on road funding and then usually education issues. Um, one thing that I was pleasantly surprised about with respect to road funding, as you can imagine, everybody wants more road funding, um, but there was very little pushback when we then got talking about the fact that if we're going to have more road funding, we need to have more money come from somewhere. And and we can sure delve into that a little bit deeper about where that money's coming from um, if you'd like to. But but I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised that there was very little pushback with respect to the gas tax or increasing the gas tax gradually over time, the registration fees, things along those lines. Uh, and I think that has to do with the fact that um, a lot of well, my whole district is, is made up of kind of small towns and small cities and, and rural counties and so forth. And, and, and over the years, their roads have just gotten a little bit worse and worse each year. And, and they see this as a real opportunity to, to improve the quality of the, the roads that they have and, and to a certain extent the quality of life uh, that the people in those counties live, uh, have. And then finally, the education issues, various things. Some, some of them are ISTEP related. Some of it was funding related. Uh, those are the two biggest issues that I usually face when I had had my third houses in the district. Okay. Let's go to the phone. We have Deb on the line from Bloomington. Deb? Hi. I wanted to to share my thanks for the efforts to support the Indiana State Police pay raise. Um, I see this as a continuation of the general hard work that our state troopers um, do every day. I think that Superintendent Carter has been an amazing asset for the state police and probably the central reason why that happened. My question, though, comes as the wife of a state trooper for over 20 years. his, his current salary prior to the pay, rate, pay raise is still less than $50,000 a year. 20 years on with the state police, 20 years impacting our family and our lives, and 50 grand. <laughs> mm. 
So I'm a little bit still bitter. Um, is there any way or any thoughts on how to make it right for those folks who have served at the state for so long for such a low rate? Let's go with uh, Eric first. Yeah, I think that, uh, well, first of all, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It was, it was a good and proper thing that we did this time by, by having a significant increase for the state police. Um, where I, I believe I'd like to see us not drop the ball in the future is to, to start having some periodic increases in future budgets. Because if I'm not mistaken, again, I'm still a little bit new at this, but if I'm not mistaken, I think maybe it would have been maybe eight or ten years since yeah. the state police had had a pay increase. Since 2008, I think. And, mm-hmm. and that creates a – obviously that creates a, a problem from many perspectives. It, make, it makes it difficult for a state police officer to provide for, for his or her family. Uh, it makes it difficult to recruit state police officers if they're not getting any type of a, a salary increase periodically. Uh, and then furthermore, quite often, at least in some of the larger communities around the state, it's my understanding that we were losing state police officers to maybe l- local city police uh, forces uh, because we couldn't compete with, with uh, maybe, let's say, Indianapolis. I don't know if that's the case in Bloomington, let's say, Evansville, Fort Wayne, Absolutely. or what have you. Um, and so. I, again, I think we should be pleased with what we did this session, but I would hope that two years from now when we're working on a budget again, we won't think, well, we gave them an increase last time, so let's not give them one now or two years from now or four years from now or six years from now. We're going to be the exact same situation just a few years down the road. I want to, before we leave this topic, and we're going to have to very quickly for a break, but I want, I want to ask Ed uh, first, and anybody else that wants to weigh in about this idea of, you know, it seems like it's always a fight when somebody's going to get a pay raise, uh, and there aren't these steps built in a lot of times. What is there? Is there a better way than just having, you know, a fight every? So this is what 2008 to 2017. So that's nine years yeah. without a pay raise. Mm-hmm. Ed. Well, you can do it a number of ways, but you're, you're always dealing with competing priorities. And you know, do you want to fund roads? Do you want to fund schools? Do you want to fund uh, public safety? And legislators have managed to find a way to give themselves an automatic per diem increase by basing it on the, uh, the federal per diem rate, and they don't have to go back each year to, to go in and change that. There are a lot of, of inflation adjustments, in, including with the gas tax now that we just uh, enacted. And there are some ways to, to do that with, with pay as well. But the, the more time you, you tie yourself automatic increases, the less flexibility you have going forward on other kinds of things. And then you find out all of a sudden that, oh, well, we've got to, uh, to cover a, a major increase in Medicaid costs, for example, that's, that's not something that's necessarily controllable. But you do have the ability to control certain other aspects. But the lawmakers are kind of reluctant to, uh, to provide, generally speaking, for automatic types of increases like that. All right, Mark Stoops looks like he might want to say something. Well, I'd, I'd agree. It's it's all about priorities. And when you think about how much salaries uh, make up of the budget and and many uh, professions aren't getting paid at, I think, an appropriate level, mm-hmm. including teachers. I'll give you an example there. Mm-hmm. But I remember in, the, uh, in county government, we had to start with salaries. And by the time we figured out what type of salary increase we could give, it really <clears throat> dictated the rest of our budget. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, Thank you, you have, Debbie. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. Thank you for your call. We appreciate it, Deb. Thanks a lot. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at wfiunews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about the legislative session uh, for 2017 with Ed Feigenbaum, State House Dispatch columnist, Brandon Smith, State House reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting, and three members of the General, General Assembly, Eric Bassler, a Republican senator from Washington. Mark Stoops, a Democratic senator from Bloomington, and Jeff Ellington, a Republican uh, who is in the State House of Representatives. If you have questions or comments, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Just uh, two quick topics. We were talking about road funding, and I thought I'd just kind of, th again, throw this out there. The two things I think I heard the most, uh, more particular from local mayors, of course, who think that the balance of money that should go to local cities per state is should be almost flipped because 80, what is it, 70 so percent of roads are owned by local uh, cities. More and than the, that, it's about 90% of it, lane oh, miles. Is it 90? Okay. Yeah, it's about 90% of lane miles. Yep. And... Um, the, the hybrid car uh, fee was the one that, to me at least, I heard a lot about from uh, people that it sounds like that the extra fee might be um, punishing those who have hybrid cars. But, uh, but of course, there's the flip side of that. So I just want to hear your side, your, your take sure. on both of those issues. Yeah, I think that um, with respect, for example, electric cars, I think it makes sense to have some type of a registration, additional registration fee, because they, they would have the opportunity to literally never pay one penny uh, toward road funding. Uh, I find it a little bit more challenging. I know it's in there for the hybrids, but I find that a little bit more challenging just from the perspective that if, if you did not, uh, without gasoline, those cars would not run. And so what they are is they're just really very fuel-efficient vehicles. So... One of the challenges there, we, we settled on $50 for, the, the say, the Prius, and let's say they get 50 miles a gallon. Well, do we have some type of registration fee for ones that get 40 miles versus 30 versus 20 versus 10? And so those types of hybrids, they're buying gas just like the rest of us are buying gas with, with like non-electric vehicles. So they are at least putting toward the, the roads. found it a little bit challenging, um, but, but as I, Senator Kinley, I think it was, that said that you don't – what did he say? He said, you, you, you don't get what you want, you get what you get. And, and so uh, you look at the budget bill, I'm sure there's probably things in that budget bill that, that all of us, maybe all 50 senators and 100 House members, there are probably things that they didn't like about the budget bill. Uh, but ultimately, you have to look at it kind of on balance and, and overall, can you vote for it based upon all the information that's in there? And obviously, the, the item with, with respect to the hybrids wasn't going to be a deal, a deal killer for me. <laughs> So a, a large funding mechanism in the in the road bill was the ten cents a gallon or ten cents um, uh, tax or ten percent tax, and um, 
uh, sorry, 10 cents a gallon tax. Mm -hmm. And I think the issue that uh, many Democrats had was that, you know, while we were giving uh, tax breaks to corporations and most of the income tax cuts went to wealthy individuals, probably 80 percent of it. Meanwhile, this left working Hoosiers funding road improvements uh, because a larger part of their wages, a larger part of their uh, money spent was going to be spent on this gas tax for commuting. Um, which makes sense. But having said that, I think the great thing about this road bill is that we, we saw a problem. We had a, a billion-dollar deficit every year in just, just maintenance of current and existing roads. Um, and the legislature actually created a plan, a 20-year plan, to, to reach that level. And uh, I, I have some disagreements about it with how it was done. Um, the hybrid vehicles, obviously hybrids and uh, and electric vehicles use less gas, so they'll be paying less towards that user fee to maintain the roads. That was the rationalization on that side. I'm not quite sure $150 annual fee is enough to disincentivize purchasing these alternate fuel vehicles. Um, hopefully, eventually, we'll all be moving towards electric or hybrids. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the local road, uh, the balance. So uh, under current law, or before the bill, um, there's a big pot of money called the Motor, Motor Vehicle Highway Fund that a lot of this, uh, these gas taxes, a bunch of registration fees at the BMV, it all goes into that. And then it gets dispersed to the state and the locals. And it's currently 53% going to the state, 47% going to the locals. Under the bill, it's actually going to change. It's going to be less going to the locals. It's going to be about a 60-40 split. Now, the argument for that was we know what the state need is, we know what the local need is, and it's about $1.2 billion a year for the state, and it's about uh, $775 million for the locals. Now, this current bill is not going to get us to those numbers, but it's going to get us about half or a little more half of the way there on the state end. The argument was, with so much new money going into that fund, if you kept it at 5347, it was going to give so much more money to the locals, the state was going to feel a little slighted. And so they altered that a little bit to make it about to make the 6040 feel like what the 5347 does right now. Now, of course, locals would rather have just gotten had that number stay the same or even get a little tighter, but it, it was about what uh, everybody involved in writing that bill felt was appropriate given the needs at both levels. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that extra incentive for the state really came from the Truckers Association who comes across Indiana, our crossroads to the U.S., um, that have complained for years that, you know, we have freight coming through there that's insured. We hit a couple potholes or a bridge that's not uh, leveled right. And they have damage to their product. They have damage to their trucks. And they said, if we are the ones to pay the bulk of this new fee, this increase in this fee, we want to make sure that we get our interstates taken care of and our, our state roads that intersect those. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, this is probably a good balance between the heavy use versus these uh, non-urban type uses in communities outside the urban areas of like Bloomington or Linton, Linton or Lagodi. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back to a point that Brandon made about local road funding, um, one other kind of fascinating aspect, at least from my district's perspective as a rural district, uh, um, there's a, a community crossings grant that's available to, to local um, cities, towns, counties, and Previously, that had been a 50-50 match. So if the, the, the locals put in a dollar, the state would put in a dollar. 
and it's still that way for larger communities. Um, but for smaller communities, it's a it's a seventy five twenty five match. So if the locals put in a dollar, the state will put in three dollars. And where that break off comes is counties less than fifty thousand, and then cities and towns less than ten thousand. Now, I'm not sure that that helps Mark's district much, but uh, <laughs> do you have, do you, are you just a Monroe County, or do you have some of the other counties in this area? Monroe County. Okay. Um, but yeah. I, I agree, that's a big help to the smaller communities. It is, Because yeah. the match was the hurdle, the right. coming up mm-hmm. with that 50% match. A mm-hmm. couple other issues, uh, key issues. One is, is pre-K expansion. I know there was a lot of debate between the, what the governor wanted, what the House passed, and what the, what the Senate passed and then it wound up with being closer to what the governor wanted um, could one of one or more of you talk about that discussion that debate and how you think it all wound up and start with mark well the the question on pre-k was uh whether to expand it and how much to expand it the original we had a couple of different bills that started uh, in the legislature it was narrowed down to one originally uh, it was a proposal to expand to another five counties um from the current five from the current five Mm -hmm. and that was opened up to statewide um uh, a statewide availability but with no really no real funding number attached to it Um, as it worked its way through the session and the budget bill came out uh, we found different uh, different priorities for the house and the senate the senate actually funded it at a meager four million dollars and a million of that would have gone to and still is going to a basically a software company out of utah that has like a virtual online program Mm -hmm. um and i had to chide senator kenley on that most of most of that million is going to go to providing broadband and computers to low-income people and i didn't know if that was a republican priority or not (laughs) it was one of the ones that actually helped sell it to me because otherwise we would never fund broadband to poor people um but the, it's still we're still losing leaving like fifteen thousand kids without a high quality preschool experience, and it's it's proven that it's uh, helpful throughout their academic life and their and their future life, and that is the kind of that is the discussion um, between I'd say the two different caucuses. Uh, many people uh, uh, or many of the legislators, uh, Republican legislators, feel like that is taking the state kind of taking the responsibility for those kids away from their parents so saying that parents should be spending more time with their kids that's the problem Um, my my uh, perspective on that is that if we actually paid a living wage and both parents didn't have to work just to get by then maybe more parents would be able to stay home with their kids and spend more time with them so Republican, uh, somebody from one of the Republican caucuses. Yep. So. Newsflash, Larry Bird is stepping down as uh, president of the Pacers. I wasn't on the education committee, but I, I think that, uh, you know, these pre uh, programs that we have right now were begun, begun under a Republican administration. Uh, I think uh, just uh, for basic conservative principles, uh, what I hear is we just want to make sure that those investments really make a difference, not just at uh, kindergarten and first grade, but they can actually show a difference in like third and fourth grade. What is the difference? Uh, what is the advantage of having those programs? Um, you know, there are uh, those who cannot afford uh, to put their children in uh, those programs on their own. Uh, there's uh, families that maybe want that opportunity. 
So at least this this expands that for them and gives them an option. And maybe at some point uh, after some more um, data, we can see what's uh, what's best. I think it's going to be also important that we continue to, to educate the general public and for that matter the, the legislators on the fact that what we're looking at here in Indiana is not just a by any means a, a babysitting process or a glorified babysitting. Uh, these pre-K programs uh, they're required to have uh, what's referred to as a learning component, uh, so so an actual academic component to to the program before they can qualify to to receive any of the the taxpayers' money. And another thing I think is important to keep focused on is the fact that these really are the the, the purpose of this is really to help the the, the poorest of the poor. I mean, we're looking at 127 percent of poverty, and I believe that would be about a thirty thousand dollar income for a family of four. Right. So as you can imagine, if if you look at a thirty thousand dollar income for a family of four. There's not going to be a whole lot of money there to pay for a pre-K program. So uh, what I would envision uh, over, over the next couple of years to come is as, as we continue to see um, the validity of the numbers that come through, because we've started from the very beginning, analyzing this program from the very beginning to be sure that we're, we're doing it right, we're getting a, some bang for the buck when it comes to truly having a positive impact on these young children. Um, and I think we'll, we'll, that will bear itself out as we continue to watch these kids as they get into second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and so forth. Been a lot of studies. Some of them have just evaluated programs that were more like babysitting services, and you're obviously not going to see a, a, an academic uh, impact in those situations. But Indiana, I think, has done a little bit different than some states. I know that Michigan has some studies they've shown that, that it has an impact all the way up to 12th grade. So, I, my what I would envision is, is is having a similar impact here in Indiana. I know that some of the studies that Purdue University has been doing have seen a positive impact so far. So we'll continue to kind of monitor as we go forward. Okay. The evaluation component will be pretty important, too, because there are some uh, key legislative fiscal leaders that are really questioning not only whether there is any real impact, period, <clears throat> but you know, for those who, who do benefit from it, whether the learning gains kind of evaporate mm-hmm. over time. And this can get to be you know a pretty expensive program, too. If, if you're looking at expanding pre-K statewide to everybody, you know, you're, you're looking at a, a $500 million program. But... As we've got it right now, I think one important thing that, that nobody's mentioned yet, which is probably just more of an implementation part of the program, is that I think you'll see the Family and Social Services Administration approach the county selection a little bit differently than they did last time. And you're going to see more preference for this on-my-way pre-K pilot to uh, be given to rural areas this time. Yeah. And I think uh, an important point, too, is is the capacity. Um, and that is, uh, while we're gradually expanding, we're, we're, we're creating the ability for some of these preschools that don't meet the levels um, necessary for that academic component to get to those levels so they can access funding. Uh, and capacity uh, within the state for high-level preschools is, is lacking right now. That's, that's a very germane point because, for example, I've, in my district there are seven counties, and, and there are two counties out of those seven that, that don't have a level three or, or four um, pre-K program. So, so we need to build capacity as we move forward also. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have about just about 10 minutes left to go in the program. We've got a lot of things to cover. Wow, Mark. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have to bring up the annexation issue. Uh, we are sitting here in Bloomington. Um, we have uh, uh, 
Senator Mark Stoops from Bloomington, Representative Jeff Ellington from Bloomington. But I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask, actually ask Ed Feigenbaum the first question. Have, uh, if you're familiar, I assume you're familiar with this situation of this being added to the state budget um, at the last minute. How common is that? Had you seen anything like this before? It happens every year, and this wasn't the only uh, instance of, of something showing up in the budget at the last minute without even being considered um, anywhere before. You, you also had a provision inserted in the budget this year that, that uh, allowed the Department of Correction to purchase what they call lethal substances, the right. medication that they need for the, the lethal injection, because the drugs are on hand right now that the state has in its supply are starting to expire. And the department wanted to be ready if they need need that supply in the future. And the provision also called for anonymity in the purchasing because the pharmaceutical manufacturers don't want to be identified, don't want to be associated with this. So these kinds of things do happen. You always expect some unexpected item in the budget. But this really was was something that uh, was kind of the the cap for this session for a lot of, of local governments. They felt that, you know, again, the home rule was, was kind of uh, abrogated with this and some other items that uh, were on the agenda this year. Uh, House Bill 1350, a, a bill on, on riverboat revenue sharing, that kind of hit the, uh, the local communities around the state hard. They weren't happy with that. There were some other examples of some things, the Airbnb regulation legislation and a few other things. Where, where local governments are starting to wonder, hey, wait a minute, you know, how much ability and authority do we have locally as opposed to having to rely on the state to regulate these things for us and keep us out of a particular area and also not fund us to do our job as we see fit? Okay, I want to give uh, Senator Stoops and Representative Ellington each about a minute to talk about this or, or less because we, we can talk about it for a long time and we've got well, a few I, other topics. There, to there was a lot of local opposition to the annexation. It was a big annexation proposal. Um, but I, I, I wish I could think that it was actually local opposition by citizens that got that language inserted, but it wasn't. It was, it was pretty much um, a corporate priority and and the legislature answered with specific language in the bill <clears throat> the bill doesn't mention bloomington but it basically is so specific that it only affects bloomington and basically says that annexation is void for five years mm-hmm. jeff anything to add i differ a little bit i i think this is bloomington residents from the small citizens on up small business community leaders county commissioners county council township trustees fire chiefs even our own Monroe County Sheriff speaking up that their budget was going to be affected. This is not a Bloomington issue for me. It is a statewide issue. This is about involuntary annexation. Uh, Each session, I would say, there's been annexation bills or amendments floating through. Some make it, some don't. It's no different than this year. This just was an issue that affected us here locally. And I'm going to look hard and thorough at trying to get Indiana back in with the majority of the nations with voluntary annexation in the future. And every right. year we have annexation bills that are moving through that have kind of corrected the process because Jeff's right. It's uh, Indiana, we can have forced annexation, but they've increased the uh, ability for citizens for remonstrance to an annexation proposal. But these are bills that made their way through the session and were commented on in committee and on the floor. Uh, this language was just 
slapped into the budget bill at the last minute, last day, literally. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna try anything I can do to help my residents. I don't care if it's early on in January when we try to work this position or at the last minute. Mm-hmm. To me, this is not last minute. This is doing your job right down to the wire. Okay, we're gonna go to the phones. Stan from Bloomington, Stan. Hi, uh, I, I'm interested in hearing comments about the uh, change in having the governor appoint the head of the education department. It seems to me other states uh, have had this in place for some time, and I, I just I'm curious because it seems to me holding the executive at the top of the administration accountable is is better than having it elect an elected position, and, and I haven't heard much about it. Senator Bass. Sure, I'd be glad to, to chime in here a little bit. Um, when you look at the, the all 50 states, the, oh, there are about 10 or 12 where the um, super, superintendent of public instruction are elected directly. Um, there are some number that are appointed directly by the governor. Um, there are some that are appointed by um, a, a state board of education. In some instances, that state board is elected. In some instances, it's appointed. So there's a wide variety of different uh, different ways that you can have a superintendent of instruction uh, fill that position. Um, I'm, I was and I am in support of, of having that be in a, an appointed position by the governor. I sure would have been open to the idea of having it be appointed by the state board of education, um, but it just came about that, that it was in this situation it's going to be the governor appointed. And my primary reason behind that is we, we want to try to uh, put a structure in place that allows one person to be accountable. And when we have 52% of our budget being spent on K-12 education, uh, my goodness, I can't imagine why we wouldn't, wouldn't want the governor to be truly accountable for the education process in Indiana. And if people think the governor's doing a great job with education, they, they can reelect him or her. And if, if not, then they cannot vote for him the next time around. Um, so I was in support of, of the idea of having it be appointed uh, position. Again, I was somewhat agnostic on whether it would be by the governor or by the State Board of Education. The, ar- the argument on the other side of that um, was a little bit, and, and there have been Republicans and Democrats over decades sure. who have supported making this an appointed position. Um, but the argument on the other side of what uh, Senator Bassler just talked about was essentially the idea that when you're voting for a governor, yeah, maybe education is one of the things you're considering, but it's one of many things you're considering. That the state superintendent was your chance as a voter to really comment through your vote on education specifically, and some people didn't like the idea of taking that away. That said, it, it uh, there was some struggle getting it through because of, of something that happened early in the session in the Senate where it, it died unexpectedly uh, after um, the, the author didn't do a, a whip count before calling it down for a vote. Um, so they had to make some changes to it. But other than that, I mean, this is something, like I said, that, that over the years has been supported by both parties and still has support from both parties. And, and Miranda, I think that may have been one of the most unexpected things that happened. Oh, absolutely. Since <laughs> absolutely. That, happened. that took us all by surprise. <laughs> Very quickly, Jeff. I don't remember the date, but this decision to give the legislature this authority happened in the early 1970s? Yeah, 1972. Okay, so that decision had already been voiced by the citizens back then to give the legislature the opportunity to either have an election for a standalone superintendent or it to be absorbed into the governor's office or wherever the legislature thought it was uh, you know, proper. Okay. Mark? I just, the only the, the biggest issue now is that we're, there are two forces at work, and one is kind of a, um, a privatized public education as opposed to more funds for public education and focus on uh, publicly run schools. And that, and so when you got the election of Glenda Ritz, 
and the election of Mike Pence, who were in opposition, um, I think that dialogue actually helped um, educate voters and, and really, to me, showed that voters had had a concern in that area when they elected uh, Glenda Ritz at the same time they were electing a Republican governor. All right, I'm going to give Ed Feigenbaum the last minute. And I, two things, Ed. One is, uh, is there anything you expect the governor to veto that, that uh, is still on his desk? And two, what's left undone that you think uh, we'll be looking at next year? And you got about a minute. Yeah, I think he'll, he'll take a real close look at that, that bill on the riverboat revenue sharing. He's being very heavily lobbied by uh, local communities on that. I think if, if you look to what we've kind of kicked down the, the road a bit, firearms laws, obviously, Airbnb regulation, workforce realignment, which was a big topic coming in, didn't get fully fully completed, teacher evaluations, redistricting reform, and then uh, perhaps the bias crimes bill comes back next year as well. Okay. Anybody have any anything to add to his list? Good coverage, though. I think, and it, but I I do agree that we have some priorities that we have to look at. Just like the road funding priority, we have to we have to make a commitment to fund our health. We are the 49th out of 50 states for health funding per person, and I think our our population shows that the effects on the population. Um, the environment, we're one of the most polluted states in the country. That's one of the reasons why we get a lot of out migration from the state. Um, and water and infrastructure. We're a billion dollars behind in water and infrastructure. How are we going to solve that problem? All right. Mark Stoops got the last word. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Um, that was Senator Mark Stoops, one of our guests today. We also had Representative Jeff Ellington, Senator Eric Bassler. We were joined by Ed Feigenbaum from the uh, from Indiana, Indianapolis and the Statehouse Dispatch and Brandon Smith, our Statehouse reporter from Indiana Public Broadcasting. For producer Ryan D. Batista, engineering Mike Pashkash, and Joe Wren, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. <laughs>